Hey, Father. How you doing? Oh, I'm doing well. What story are we doing today? Oh, thank heavens. I mean, the people have been begging. Okay, great. Call back later. You guys, this week, we are finally talking about David and Goliath. Welcome to another episode of Bible Stories with me, Brianda. Brianda. And my Spanish vixen behind the wheel, La Clara. Hey, how are you? I am so excited about this episode. Like this episode, it's this episode. What other story? Actually, I think the story of David and Goliath, I get the most DMs about. Like, please, Brianna, talk about David and Goliath. Like at this point, do you not know we're going in order? (laughs) (laughs) I was going to get to it. Well, we're finally here, okay? Um, And I'm so excited to, to dive into it. Um, but how are you, mommy? How is everything? I'm good. I'm good. I can finally see with no glasses. Oh, yes. La Clara just recently got uh, LASIK eye, well, not LASIK, but something comparable yeah. to LASIK eye mm-hmm. surgery. Oh, gosh. My mom keeps telling me to get that. Was it painful? Not at all. Not at all. I just, um, you're awake the whole time, but you don't feel anything at all. Oh, I'm my gosh. I'm so glad I did it. So glad. Like, what if, let's, I mean, a high tangy off your story. <laughs> like, what if like a tool like slipped out of his hands or like a surgeon's hands? Oh, I don't want to like, think about that. <gasps> I mean, you're good no. now. You're fine. <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay. Another thing, just like vibe check, mood check. I don't feel great. <laughs> oh. The um Lexapro's making me fat. It's it's making me gain weight. Is what I want to say. I feel like a sausage right now, and I may unbutton my jeans because there is no stretch in these guys, and I am trying my best <laughs> to hide my chichos. <laughs> you look gorgeous. So. Just letting you guys know if you see, like, a random button fly off later in the episode, <laughs> that's why. Um, all right, let's hop in, because this story is hardy. I'm not just telling the story of David and Goliath. I'm telling, like, the the, the storyline that immediately precedes it. Mm-hmm. So, it, and it is pretty girthy. Not as girthy as last week's episode. Which, by the way, if you haven't seen last week's episode watch last week's episode before you watch today's i'm just or you could just stay if you're on youtube give me the views um let's dive into some listener questions yeah let's do it okay so what there were so many great questions um okay there was one that i thought was really interesting oh i liked this question uh how do you know when god is talking to you and i thought that was interesting because i remember at the beginning of my of my like walk with with God, mm-hmm. I felt like I conflicted. Like, wait, how do I not know? The Bible tells me, I don't want to confuse you guys mm-hmm. right now, but the Bible tells us that there are evil spirits. There are spirits that are holy. Mm-hmm. Our job as believers is to be holier, be holy, be as holy as possible, right? How do we distinguish between these two entities, essences, knowing that they're both so uh, swift? And I don't want to. I don't want to use. There's no negative connotation to swift. Mm-hmm. Powerful, maybe. Yeah, they're powerful. They're they have the ability to manipulate any aspect or facet of your life mm-hmm. in such like a like a a real in such a real way you know Mm -hmm. they they can make you completely change the trajectory of your life how do you decipher between what what is this right and so this question was really interesting because I've asked especially in my infancy in like the first couple years I would ask myself that and I have an answer I may be wrong you know I never want to misguide you guys definitely have some discernment when when listening to anyone talking about things as complex as uh spiritual systems religion whatever have you but here's my inkling on how to distinguish between like what you're listening to what is your intuition and what is not your intuition and um when so far i've been able to confirm you know, messages or downloads from the Lord when I know that I feel like a confirmation, like an intense, like, oh, like a deep remembering. I remember I I was talking about that in our uh, 
Deuteronomy episode, Hmm. how important that was for Moses to hammer into the brains and minds of the people of Israel was just to remember when you feel yourself slipping, remember, I think it's that same muscle. And, and I know I I always like to describe it to people who are non-believers as like deja vu times 10. Hmm. It's this feeling of, Oh, confirmation. So if you feel like something is confirming what your soul is telling you and whatever you define as soul, a deep sense of something that's metaphysical, like not even your bo- of your body. It's, you guys know, I know I've done a lot of mushrooms in the past, but if you guys know what I'm talking about, leave a comment, thumbs up, but you let me know that you guys understand because this is really complicated. Now, when it's not of God, which I've experienced, especially in like manic lows, that's when the enemy creeps in because you're at your most, you know, uh, weak hmm. and weak-willed and weak-minded and susceptible to manipulate negative manipulation. Because mm-hmm. I do believe there's positive manipulation, but that's another question or story. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, when you know that it's not of God is when you feel confusion. When you, uh, even if it's a millisecond of confusion. Hmm. Like I said, it can be swift both the negative and the positive, both the light and the dark. So like, if you ever feel like, uh, I, I wanna say confusion, cause you still feel doubt with the positive. It's just, it's a confusion, like a bewilderment. Hmm. That's my first sign of up, uh, pause, pause. No decision is to be made right this second. Pray, mm-hmm. pray on it, meditate on it. So, Um, How do you know when God is talking to you? When I feel a sense of like confirmation, Mm -hmm. like a a deep remembering, like, oh, have I been here before? Oh, I've heard this before. Oh, it's a familiar feeling. Oh, it's our father. Is that how you felt um, on the train? Because I remember an episode you said that. Yes. uh, Clara's referencing uh, an episode where I, sometimes I, I don't always hear God auditory like there mm. I don't I don't that doesn't happen to me but I know it happens to a lot of my brothers and sisters in Christ for me it's more of a like an intuitive feeling okay than anything else uh but that one time I heard it felt like a like a confirmation like a ah oh. like a like a deep remembering it feels so familiar mm-hmm. there's no mistaking it and um it sounds really nutty right now it even sounds kind of egotistical to say out loud like I don't have the answers and I don't know, but uh, uh, the ability to recognize that I don't know is also of God. It's a part of my religion to release and relinquish myself of any, of knowing, because mm-hmm. I know that only one entity knows all. You know? Does that make sense? This is such a like heady conversation. It's kind of trippy. I feel like I'm on my old show, Super Trip Doc. No, I feel it's one of these things that you can only understand with very few words if you have ex- experienced it. Because, mm. like, I can hear you talk, and because I haven't experienced it, I'm like, okay, that's something that I can sense that is, like, something hard to explain, and then, you know, it's how you feel it, but I haven't experienced it, so I can relate to it. 100%. You know, I saw a TikToker, uh, a mother, mm. who uh, was not of faith, before motherhood. Mm-hmm. She said that the, and she still is actually not a believer, but she has this uh, Jordan B. Peterson-esque energy about her in that she doesn't, she's not practicing, but now she has a deep empathy and like understanding for those who are mm-hmm. uh, uh, Muslim, or Christian, uh, Jewish, whatever have you. Um, and she said that when she held her daughter for the first time, her very first daughter, Mm. she said that it was this feeling of, oh, completeness, I am so, she kept saying the words like, I am so small, I am no longer the, the, and and guess what? That feeling is that same feeling when you experience Mm. our Lord. It's like this feeling of, oh my God, I'm so small. I am so small. Like this is so much bigger. There's so much bigger. This is Mm. so much bigger. I would give my life Mm. for this. To see this nerd, to see this grow. That's how I feel about my faith right. now. So, anywho, when she said that, I was like, huh, maybe that's something that we can, like a middle ground, trying to get the other side to uh, maybe understand a little bit, a sliver, you know, yeah. just like a little bit, a little bit. But who knows? I don't know. Yeah. I, I, that was a high tangy, sort of, sort of. Um, and I will not tell you on the mic what high tangy is. 
ask your friends what it means. I just don't want to tell people. I'm so naughty. No, let's give it. Let's give the mystery. I like that. Yeah. yeah. Like, and I love getting comments like, oh, I finally figured out what high tangent yeah, means. I was like, going to say, I feel that if they keep listening to you, they're going to understand. Catch on. Yeah. Like, oh, that's what it means. There was this podcast called uh, The History Hyenas with Giannis Papas and Chris DiStefano, two comics. They're hilarious. And that show, oh my gosh, was so funny. I'm so sad that they ended it. But there were so many inside jokes, inside things that they had that it was like a family. And their fans were so like, they were like a cult, cultish in loyalty mm -hmm. and i feel like that language that they had almost gave them a bond so i kind of want to have that with this show too a little family yeah so maybe we'll do something that's a little more because i feel like high tangy is a little obvious after a couple episodes but i'm not telling you what it is mm, eh, i'm not telling you what it is <laughs> anywho um wait i want there is one other question that i wanted to i wanted to uh answer because they had been asking it for several weeks and okay. I just, I feel like a, like a meanie not answer. Oh yes. Uh, they always ask me this or I always get questions that are kind of like this in case this isn't the same person. Uh, do you think manifesting is thinking you're greater than God? And by manifesting, I'm assuming that this person is talking about, you know, how we commodify certain terms, especially like spiritual Twitter, like manifest the life of your dreams mm. by saying five positive affirmations, <laughs> looking at the mirror and dim light. That's the worst accent ever. But like, <laughs> like that's, I feel like that's what she's like discussing. Do you think that practicing those sorts of things, the manifesting manifestation culture is thinking that you're greater than God and I'm going to go ahead and say, yeah, I do. I think that. I think that, um, but I don't necessarily think that all of it is negative. Like if, if saying five words of affirmation works for you and allows you to get out of bed every morning, go to the gym, do your laundry on time, uh, actually fold it and put it away the day that you do your laundry. Like if you, it gets you to do that, say your affirmations, babes, but I do think that the more we, uh, you know, uh, uh, brand it and start getting coaches like, oh, for thirty, uh, for three hundred dollars for an hour, I'll teach you how to manifest the life. I think that that's when we start getting into like these really dark, seedy, dark, magic-y territory, which I reject wholeheartedly. It's against my religion. It's against my beliefs. And any time you start worshiping. Anything other than God, you're being misled. That's funny because I thought your response would be, not the opposite, but I thought your response would be that that is something that you're like God has planted in your brain and you're only wishing or like aiming for it because that's like your fate or what he wants for you. Here's the thing. I That's why I said that some, if the action allows you to, get on the right track to become closer to God. Who am I? How can I say like, whatever works at some point, like or at least in the beginning, especially in the beginning, mm. I'm still a babe in the faith. So that's someone like as a sister, I'm saying like, oh no, I, I understand that. Um, uh, ADD, I kind of forgot what you said, but that it was like God planting the seed, like the only reason why no, you're manifesting. But what if it's not God planting the seed? And what if it's you uh, uh, romanticizing the idea of maybe God having planted that seed mm. in you? You're no longer worshiping God. You're worshiping yourself. Mm. Gotcha. Does that make sense? Mm. It, it, it takes deep meditation in order to develop that awareness. Awareness is a muscle right? Like you learn that in um, mindfulness meditation and a lot of forms of meditation, mm -hmm. but it just, it gets, it gets a little squirrely when you start commodifying um, th things that involve awareness and con higher consciousness, which is what manifestation really is. Mm -hmm. I, I, if, for my understanding, I don't know, I don't practice it, but um, to answer a question, I do, I do think that it's thinking that your, your abilities are greater than God. Mm -hmm. I have to repel that. You know what I'm saying? But um, anywho, uh, Clara, did you... I had a question for oh, you. Okay, I was like, do you want to dive in the story? Let me ask you a question. All right. I had a question for you. Um, 
Well, you know, I'm not very familiar with the church, religion, whatever. So first thing, like I said, since my first day, I don't want to offend anyone or get anyone in trouble. But I was thinking the other day about the Vatican and how high rank the Pope and the ones that are around him or whatever, like priests, mm -hmm. I don't know, um, makes me think whether if at certain rank, do you still have such a strong faith in God or you start to operate more in a political way? Also, seeing the Vatican looks like a palace itself, like so much material richness, right? And I'm just thinking that could be Okay, those are two things. Those are two things that I want to, that I want to, bow, bow, stick my teeth into. I'll start with the, the, the latter, the church stuff mm -hmm. that you're saying. The Vatican is so beautiful. You know, sometimes you go to these um, churches that take over 300, 400, 500 years to make, right, to get it right. I want to say, why can't God be a God of aesthetic? No, I'm not, I'm not talking about the beauty of it. I'm oh, talking about the material richness, like gold, pure gold, pure, like every attire that they wear is like silk and all these jewels that they mm. wear, like the diamonds and the emeralds. And like, that looks a little like ah. not modest or not. Can I tell you what I intuitively think yeah. about that? And I, I, you're just asking me this now. I haven't thought about this long enough. Mm -hmm. I'm sure I would have a different answer if I had enough more time to, to let it sit. Mm. But my emotional impulse is to say, I think that it's so that we are reminded that none of this matters. If we give you, if we give you something of the most value, man, man-made value, mm. then that means that. We, I guess what I'm saying is it would take something of that high value to strip it, to, um, uh, to take control back from it, to remind you that this isn't by Al. Oh, no, no, I'm not. <laughs> by Alex, Alex Media, everybody. Um, to remind us all that this is nothing. Whereas if those priests were wearing like Fashion Nova scrubs, I don't think it would have that same effect. No, it, but it's more so, you know, the monks that mm -hmm. wear like no material luxuries. Yeah. It's more so like, it was a very comfortable way of showing everybody what you shouldn't be, you know, aiming for when you're surrounded by all this richness and all this. Which brings me to the first half of your question. I, we can't say that, and I, again, we're talking about Catholicism and, and all church this other, institution. Yes. Yeah. But that when, when you're at that level, I think that's where all the gold and the gems and the jewels are at. Mm. When you talk about grassroots, you don't see that. And yet they're still, you know, teaching the gospel. Mm -hmm. They're very low, like no frills, very, you know, humble churches exist. You know, it doesn't apply. But that that brings me to your to your the first half of your question. Do you think that as the rank gets higher in priesthood, in whatever have you? Again, I'm not a I'm not Catholic. Um, do you think that they begin to distance themselves from God mm -hmm. and become more? Is I'm just reiterating your question. More about the politics involved. Mm -hmm. I think that with any. Uh, group industry organization that is as big and vast as the Catholic church, you're bound to, uh, there, there are bound to be some holes in the system. Mm -hmm. Um, and that is proven. Right. <laughs> See the movie spotlight. Okay. <laughs> like, I will. um, yeah. So, and that, that's like the extreme Mm -hmm. Um, I, I do, I do think that there may be, uh, some chances of those things happening, but that occurs with size that occurs as things expand. Mm -hmm. That's why so there's so many different tentacles to Christianity. Yeah. Don't get me wrong because as much as I am a non-believer, I do believe that the church at a lower, lower meaning farther from the Pope yeah, yeah. level, um, 
does some really good um, social work, for yeah. example. But I've, that's where my question came from, where at some point do they get lost in it? Because if you look at the church in the very ground level, it's like very dedicated to the others and to like solving. And when it comes, you know. Yeah, I mean, you, it depends on the view. Like I, I have a, you start at an A, at an A plus with me first. Mm. And unless you, like you're innocent until proven guilty. I like, I, I have a more optimistic view of it. Like I can only hope that they are doing what their, their, du their, their duty is. Mm -hmm. But before their duty is their relationship to God, mm. if you're nurturing that like a domino, the rest follows. Mm. Your relationship with God is compromised if you're not doing actionable deeds. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So it would start with me trusting that these people, these children of God are observing their their covenant with the Lord, that they are doing what they have to do. Mm -hmm. And then the rest is out of my hands, you know? The, it, it starts with that. Mm -hmm. if, that's, if that's compromised, then that's where you get all this other stuff. Like, that's where you get the, the dark stuff. That's also where you get the, the vanity and the, all the other things. Yeah. So I don't know, but that's interesting. I'm going to sit on that for a little bit to see if I can get you a, a better, more comprehensive answer. Cool. But that's what I have to say right now. Cool. Thank Yay. you. So now, guys, we are going to dive into this week's episode, David and Goliath. More specifically, it, we're going to be diving into 1 Samuel as our continuation from last week's episode. Uh, chapters 13 through 17-ish. Uh, you guys know I like saying ish because sometimes I go a little uh, further or a little before, depending on my mood. You know what I'm saying? Where we left off at last week's episode, Saul has now been appointed the king of Israel. Now, just a tidbit of information. Saul became king at 30 years old and ruled for a total of 42 years. And an important note to make for today's episode is Saul had a family. He had kids. I think he had five or six kids total. But the one with the most screen time is Jonathan, okay? Jonathan was his son who was uh, like a general in the uh, for the Israelite army. And at one, at one point, you know that right now the Philistines are like enemy number one for the Israelites. And Jonathan, Saul's son, leads an attack at one of the Philistine outposts. And the Philistines go buck, okay? So it's, war hasn't ensued yet, but they're about to. They even say something like, um, the, the Philistines say uh, the Israelites have become obnoxious, you know? So Jonathan, uh, the, Jonathan's attack gets back to Saul, and Saul, oof, you guys, ends up blowing a loud trumpet that everyone can hear, meaning everyone come and help. Everyone come, because it's about to get ugly. So a bunch, they acquire a bunch of troops. I think um, uh, 3,000 are with Saul, and 2,000 end up being with Jonathan. Once Saul calls for the trumpets and stuff, the Philistines know that they're about to get busy. But what the Israelites don't know is that the Philistines came prepared. They start coming with chariots, really strong troops. The Israelites get so scared, they start scurrying off. And, oh, Saul is so nervous, he starts freaking out. He starts asking the Lord, like, Lord, what do I do? Like, oh, the Lord doesn't answer. First sign, okay, guys? So he doesn't get a response from the Lord. So you know what Saul does? He asks his people for offerings, begins to do burnt offerings. But what do we know from the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers? Only priests can do that. Saul was not a priest, y'all. And let me tell you something. He gets in big trouble with our boy Samuel and El Padre, the Lord. Once Saul blows the trumpets, 
he's expecting Samuel to show up within a seven day radius. Um, if you're reading along with Bible stories with Brianda, uh, you know what that means. So Samuel is supposed to show up at this certain, a lot of time within seven days and he doesn't, but he shows up a little after he just doesn't show up from within those seven days. That's when Saul really starts freaking out. And that's what causes Saul to do the burnt offerings himself. If he had just waited, but he didn't wait impatience and pride. I tell you, so Samuel finally shows up and he sees that Saul is doing all these burnt offerings. And Samuel is like, what are you doing? Let's hop into scripture for more context. Scripture for Samuel, chapter 13, verse 13. Samuel tells Saul, you have done a foolish thing. You have not kept the command that the Lord, your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. So right now we understand that the Lord has already started to rebuke Saul for uh, uh, not following orders, for being a, a crap king at this point. This, is, this isn't this is his first mistake, you know? Um and he, we also reveal here that the Lord has appointed someone new. This is the first little inkling that Saul hears about the Lord cooking up another ruler, another king. Okay? Mm. So we also find out, remember when I said that Saul had 3,000 troops? At this point, he has 600. That's how many people he lost. Okay? Increíble. Ugh. Anywho. So Jonathan knows that his dad at this point isn't the sharpest king, okay? Jonathan ends up taking matters into his own hands. You know what I'm saying? So Jonathan actually attacks the Philistines one more time, and he does it with faith alone, okay? He doesn't, need, he doesn't even tell his dad about this. He just goes with his armor bearer, him and, him and his armor bearer. He goes, let's just go over there. Let him know what's good. We've got God. Um, let me uh, hop into scripture to describe more about what Jonathan told his buddy. Scripture, 1 Samuel 14 through 6 through 7. Jonathan said to his young arm bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men, the Philistines. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead. I am with you, heart and soul. And Jonathan is once again proving that his faith in the Lord is far stronger than his father's. And guess what? They end up winning. Hmm. They end up winning. It's incredible. It's, um, I'm like itchy. Sorry. Sorry, guys. I'm itching. Um, he ends up winning. And he was just two people. They end up slaughtering. They end up slaughtering dozens of people. Okay, I'm wow. team Jonathan. You know what I'm saying? So on the day of their victory, Saul obviously hears about it and he's like, oh, okay, good job, Jonathan. <laughs> you know? Um, he puts out a mandate though. Because just because Jonathan won that little battle at the a Philistine outpost doesn't mean that he took over the Philistines, which is what the ideal is, what they really want to do. So I think, and this is just me interpretation, Bible stories with Brianda. Okay. Brianda. I think Saul was a little butthurt here because he puts out this order, this command, uh, where he makes everyone in his army fast like they're not allowed to eat. They're not allowed to eat until all enemies are killed. That is what Saul says. Wow. I'm sorry. Do you know that you rely on the strength of your army in order to win? You're literally weakening your army. It's like that that's what happens with people who 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 are so proud and are or uh get butt hurt when their ego gets stung. You know what I'm saying? So the, we're now in like chapter 15 and Jonathan is with some of the army and they enter the woods. 
Now, Jonathan was out by the outpost when Saul was coming up with this rule, talk about y'all can't eat. So Jonathan actually doesn't know about this. But when Jonathan reconvenes with the army, whatever, they go into the woods, uh, they find like a bunch of honey on the ground. Jonathan gets his staff and he like picks it up and goes to eat it. And the people go, wait, 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 don't eat the honey. We're not allowed to eat. Saul said we can't eat anything. Jonathan goes, what? What do you mean you can't eat anything? That is ridiculous. Jonathan goes, shoves his face with some honey, y'all. Let's dive into some scripture, okay? Samuel, 1 Samuel 14, verse 29. Jonathan said, my father has made trouble for the country. See how my eyes brightened when I tasted a little of this honey? How much better it would have been if the men had eaten today some of the plunder they took from the enemies. Would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been even greater? So once Jonathan tells the people that, the people are like, yeah, yeah, what this guy said. So y'all, you give someone an arm, they take your whole like leg, body, everything. Like they, the guys start eating everything. They start killing animals and eating them even with the blood, which by the way, that is against the law. Hebrews are not allowed to eat uh, meat with blood in it. So these guys are going crazy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They probably hadn't eaten in a really long time. So Saul finds out that they have been eating animals with the blood in it. And so not only did they break the command that Saul gave on them, they also now are breaking the covenant law uh, uh, that the Israel the Israelites have with our Lord. You guys, Saul goes to God and is like, oh, what do I do? What do I do? Like, what's going on? Crickets. Silence. God ain't showing up for you, Saul. Okay. So once Saul knows that God's not answering him, he even starts throwing up any trick like, what, is it Jonathan? Do you need me to kill Jonathan? I'll kill him. Saul says this about his own son. That's how twisted this guy is, okay? And guess what? The people of Israel rock with Jonathan so heavy that they go, Saul, what are you doing? No, we are not going to kill him, please. That man has done a lot for us. Please do not kill him. The people are the ones that end up saving Jonathan because Saul, a crazed king, a wicked king, is capable of anything, okay? And at this point, we're winding down on chapter 14, and we end with Saul backing off, and from that day on, anyone that Saul sees in the vicinity, in the campsite, that appears to be brave, strong or wise, Saul ends up wanting to befriend or have them work really close to him. Mm. Like a fake ass dude, okay? He was being fake, fake. Hi, Tangy. I just hate people like that. You, you know, there are some opportunistic people. I'm talking to Clara, but I'm also talking to you people, especially in entertainment, that like, they, they just wanna keep you as friends. I'm talking to Clara, They're, they wanna keep you as friends. Just, to like see what they can get out of you. Mm. Like they don't even care really about you. What? But you know what that means though? Why? They see potential in you. Because if they, if that's all they're after, if you didn't have any talent, they'll be sucking someone else's blood. This is true. But how, how, um, uh, um, what's the word that I want to look for? Inauthentic and manipulative. Oh yeah. You know, starting 100%. out that way, what kind of relationship are you cultivating? Oh. You, well, that, that's the gross, that's the gross nature of it all. Like, yeah, they're talented. Yeah, you want to be around them. Yeah, that's a compliment, I guess. But who knows what kind of environments you're exposing me to. It's a well, compliment when you realize and, but you, like, you don't get too close to these people. You know what I mean? You're allowed to a certain extent, like a very superficial top of the ice. You want to know how I can tell when someone's doing that with me? Hmm. Uh, when they don't ask me a single about thing. About you. About me. Yeah. Um, I remember I bartended in New York for like like almost 10 years. And I have, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a listener. 
I like to listen to people. I like asking questions. I like getting to know people. My therapist says that part of that is because it allows me to not reveal anything about myself. Around, you know? um, but that's probably why you're so good at storytelling and why you have such a great sense of humor because a lot of listening. Yeah. Well, I remember one time I had worked with this girl. I won't say her name, but I worked with this girl for eight years. We'd worked with each other since we were 18. Went from servers to bartenders together or whatever. And our seventh year of like friendship of knowing each other, she asked me, wait, Brie, where are you from? And I went, shut up. Wow. Yeah. Fake friends. God doesn't want us to have fake friends, guys. Okay. Just take the compliment and let them go. Exactly. But that's what Saul's doing at this point. Like, you know, because at this point he knows he has a little air of what God's that he that he's already like and God hasn't been answering him. Mm-hmm. He has to know. Saul's not that dumb, right? Mm-hmm. So he wants to see who who it is. So he wants to keep him close. Mm-hmm. Pin in that. Okay. Pin in that. Mm-hmm. Now, Samuel gives Saul another task. Because Technically, he's still king. And technically, he still has duties to check off for the Lord in the meantime until the next king rises. So Samuel tells Saul, you need to take over the Amalekites. And if you remember from our Exodus episodes, the Amalekites were the OG enemies of the people of Israel. While the people of Israel, remember the 40 years that they were in the wilderness? During that time, the Amalekites were trying to have them deaded. Like, you remember, uh, uh, what's his name, Balaam and the donkey and stuff? Like, remember mm-hmm. that time? This I'm talking about way back. This is a way back. So he goes, these people gotta go. And Saul goes, oh, all right, Pat, yeah, I got it. So Saul takes his entire troops, his entire army, goes, takes him over, does a thing, da-da-da-da-da-da, takes him over, gets all the people. But guess what? In the text, it says that Saul spared the king of the Amalekites. His name was Agar. Hmm. I wonder why. They also don't kill all of the animals. They coincidentally spared all of the strongest, best-kept animals and kept all the plunders that they took from the Amalekites. What they were instructed not to do, Saul did. Or, if you think about it, Saul only completed half of it, right? Samuel comes and checks in on the status of the Amalekites and he sees that all of the plunders are there around Saul. All of the animals are fine. And Samuel hears that the king is still alive. At this point, the Lord is so sad, Clara. The Lord at this point, he already knew. The Lord knows everything. But the Lord has emotions and feels in present time too. Mm-hmm. He regrets making Saul king. Actually, the exact scripture. Does he blame Samuel? Because he chose him, right? Uh, no. I think in this case, it's not even about blame. Let's get into scripture okay, and yeah, I'll let you know. But that's good. That's a good question. Scripture, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry. And he cried out to the Lord all that night. Samuel felt guilty, you know? Mm. But he did what the Lord instructed him to do. You he know? had the green light, too. And different translations in the Bible, because uh, you know that the Bible is translated in many different languages. And even English, it's tough to decipher exactly, like, what if whether it's a word-for-word translation or phrase Translation, it's very tough here. Mm -hmm. So laws laws of hermeneutics when reading any biblical text. But in some translations, they don't use the word regret. It's more like grievance. God is grieving. Mm -hmm. God is mourning. So let's not get too tripped up on the word uh, regret because biblically it doesn't mean what we think regret means. God can't regret. God is God. It's just an intense grieving, like a mourning. Makes sense. You know, 
there were lives lost that didn't have to be lost in this sense. Um, and Samuel sees with his own eyes that they kept all the Amalekites' best stuff. And Samuel confronts Saul and he's like, bruh, what is going on? Y'all, you don't even want to know what the Lord has told me, okay? And you know what Saul says? Saul goes, but you told me to kill. I, I killed them. I told you I did it. I, I did exactly what you said. And Samuel says, but you didn't though. Muy mal hecho. You didn't finish the job, bruh. And then he says, and now the Lord is displeased. And that is when Saul finally opens his eyes. He's like, oh crap. It's kind of like when people only learn through consequences. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So they end up having like this cipher. And Samuel hits him with these bars that loca, penetra. Like, oh, let's dive into text because Saul gets it. Uh, scripture, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 22 to 23. Samuel replies to Saul after all of his excuses, you know? Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than uh, the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And finally, we go from the Lord rebuking Saul to know the Lord is rejecting you. And Saul knows this. Saul is hearing this from prophet Samuel. And this is the last time that Samuel sees Saul. So now that we know that the Lord has rejected Saul, it is now Samuel's duty to find the next king of Israel who has already been carefully selected by the Lord. The Lord tells Samuel, the next king is going to be one of the sons of Jesse in Bethlehem. Who is Jesse? Jesse happens to be the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. Copy that? God, I swear I didn't do drugs. My nose is so itchy. I'm so sorry, guys. I'm oh, God. The only drug I do is the Holy Spirit. Oh, my Lord. Okay, we're back. No sé qué pasa. Is it like allergies? No sé. Maybe. Samuel gets on his donkey and goes to Bethlehem, to Jesse's house. And he's basically, the setup is, he's in Jesse's living room like, one of y'all sons is going to be the next king. And so I bet you all the kids that were in there were like, oh my God, is it going to be me? Is it going to be me? Fun fact, a lot of Jesse's kids were tall stature, big, kind of like Saul. Remember the reason why Saul, like people believed that he was going to be the king is because Saul was so tall, dark, handsome. Some of Jesse's kids are tall and handsome and strong. A lot of them were in the army, the troops uh, for the Israelites. And uh, uh, Samuel, like, like an episode of Shark Tank, except the big boss is God. Samuel goes, how's this guy? God's like, no. What about this one? God's like, no. What about this guy? He's strong, worth five million. God's like, no, I am not investing in that dude. And it's so funny because God uh, uh, tells Samuel, by the way, this time, we're not working with size. I don't care about size. To be specific, the Lord said to Samuel in chapter 16, verse 7, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Oh, that is deep. That is deep. And then all of a sudden, guess who comes strolling in? The youngest of Jesse's kids. He is small, a young boy, very handsome, very handsome and attractive looking, but a small young shepherd boy named David. He comes in after and the Lord tells Samuel, bingo. Samuel's like, what, him? You want this kid? Like this, he was a kid. And he goes, yep. 
And just like the little moment that Samuel had with Saul uh, a couple chapters before, you know, he informally anoints David in front of all of his family. Like he gets the fancy oil and everything, pours it on his head. Like this is the new king. And uh, Samuel anoints him then and there. It's the informal anointing of David. King David. Ooh, well, hi, Tangie, but not really hi, Tangie. Did you know that there are 14 generations between, there are 14 generations between King David and the exile of Babylon, and then from the exile, there are 14 generations to Jesus. Mm. Um, and if we play that back, there are 14 generations between uh, Abraham and David. Oh, I know, right? It's kind of cool. Oh my gosh, we're all getting close to the New Testament, which is my book, because my man, Jesus. Well, technically, Jesus is everywhere. Jesus is also in the Old Testament, but that is contested by the Jews. Uh, <laughs> I love my Jewish listeners. I love my Jewish friends. I love them all, okay? But soy Cristiana. Anyways, where was I? You know what I also think is kind of cool? That David was a shepherd. Yeah. Just like Moses. Moses was a shepherd. Oh. It like makes me think, what is it about the job description of a shepherd that makes for these like strong, famous, legendary kings? And um, I remember in the episode, one of the Moses episodes, like I thought, well, what does a shepherd do? A shepherd herds sheep. They spend a lot of time by themselves with other animals. Like, if you're by yourself for that long, you are in deep meditation. And you travel a lot, too. Travel a lot. Good stamina. Great legs. Right? You, you interact with a lot of different people. People with money. People that don't have oh, so much money. Oh, I see money. what you're saying. Yeah. But more so, I wanted and to And the meditation side of it. Yeah, but I wanted to highlight, like, the, the hours a day that you're by yourself. And you take care of other beings, not human beings, but you take care of other beings. Yeah. So. I just thought that was so interesting. Like, shepherds are low-key, like, like rappers. Like, in the Bible, like, they're NBA basketball players. <laughs> like, for real. Anyways, at the time of David's anointing, immediately, as it happens, the Holy Spirit possesses his body in preparation for his new life. And the moment that happens, the Lord sends evil spirits to Saul. Now, I know that sounds a little tricky. Why is the Lord sending evil spirits? What I think, again, this is Bible stories with Brianda, because nothing evil can come of God. What I, under, from my understanding, is God can use whatever energies around to manipulate them into serving his plans. Nothing can thwart God's final plans. Do you understand what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Like, so that's what I, that, that when the Bible says that, I don't want you to kind of be like disgusted. Like, huh, God, what is God sending out evil, evilness? God is not evil. <laughs> yes, you know, you're right. God isn't, but that's not what we're saying here. Nothing can thwart God's plans, right? And I think that it's, again, one of that, like that duality of, dark and light, good and evil, a young king and an older king, like things of that nature. Um, so once Saul has the evil uh, spirit, possess his body, the people around him, his guardsmen, they, they begin to, to feel, you know, when someone's not good, you can feel that. You ever met a really creepy dude at a bar? Mm. You won't even let them touch you, like whatever. Mm. It's like you can feel that. Oh, you've definitely done some like insidious things. You can feel that. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's what the people were sensing off of Saul. And could you imagine? Saul used to have the Holy Spirit in him, so that, you, you see the difference, mm -hmm. right? So the, his people around him, they go, hey, listen, we know just the thing you need. You need music. Music, they go. Because back then at the time, music was used as a therapy, like a medicine. Anytime, like they didn't have Tylenol back then. If you had a migraine, Bring the violins. <laughs> like that's what would happen back then. So the, the people go, oh my gosh, you know who's an incredible musician? One of the sons of Jesse. You know who is a musician, a beautiful artist? 
a, a poet, David, on top of being a shepherd, David is also a lyricist. He's a music, a musician. He plays the, um, the, a harp. Some people say that it wasn't a harp, but for lack of a better word, it was, it was a stringed instrument with a long, with a wide neck. So let's just call it a harp. And that's what was David's specialty. And, uh, at that point, Saul goes, all right, bring me, bring me this harpist. Fun fact. I always talk about Psalms. Psalms was the first book I ever read in the Bible. Hi, Tangy, but also high, not high Tangy. Tangy off the high Tangy, kind of high Tangy, semi high Tangy, whatever. David wrote 75 of the 150 Psalms. He wrote them. That's how sharp his pen was, his pen game was. Whenever someone's like, I don't know where to begin with the Bible, I don't know where to do, I always just say, read the Psalms. Read the Psalms, because it's so beautiful. What's a Psalms? Psalm is, uh, do you want to look it up? So, like what the exact thing is? Like, because when I think of it as like a book of poetry, like songs, you know? So, um, but what's the, like the, the definition of Psalm? Our girl Clarita is a Psalm. Is a sacred song or hymn, I guess. Hymn, I yeah, yeah, yeah. Hymn. In particular, any of those contained in the biblical book of Psalms and used in Christian and Jewish worship. Yes. So it's just a sacred song and hymn. Basically. That's exactly it. Like it is before poetry books were a thing, there was the book of Psalms. Mm. And more than like just around half of it was authored by one man. It does say here, many are traditionally ascribed to King David. Yeah. How cool. Like. Could you imagine having like a president who was like Prince or Michael Jackson? <laughs> you know what? Never mind. Let's just go back to the story. Uh, <laughs> David and Goliath. <laughs> and now, the moment we've all been waiting for. We're about to get into David and Goliath. So, we know that David, multi talented, multifaceted, dynamic dude. He has two jobs now. He is now the official harpist for King Saul and also still doing his shepherd work while his brothers were, were at war. Like they, they, um, they were like soldiers. They were in the army for the Israelites. And at this point, the Philistines still are beefing with the Israelites. And this is still a major issue for Saul. So at one point, while David is, you know, out and about in the fields, shepherding his sheep, his dad, Jesse, goes, hey, yo, David, why don't you bring some food to your brothers who are at the, the battlegrounds because they haven't done anything over there. Right now, they're basically, the battle is at a, at a, at a halt, at a standstill because the Philistines have brought out the big guns, okay? And Jesse says, can you bring out some food to your brothers? Because they're hiding out at the top of a mountain ridge, haciendo nada, like doing nothing. So David, being a diligent, uh, respectful young man, listens to his father, which is one of the Ten Commandments. You always listen to your, obey and honor your father and mother. He goes to bring his siblings food. And as he goes to bring his siblings food, he hears and sees Something he has never seen before in his life. A loud mouth, giant, something like a Nephilim, a nine foot, five inch mammoth of a man, an uncircumcised Philistine giant named Goliath. And I say uncircumcised Philistine because that's what the Bible tells me. I'm not being funny. And he hears this giant talking so much smack. He's calling the Israelites dogs. <laughs> he is calling them like, y'all are a bunch of birds. And as David is hearing all this, he's like, what did you say about my people? You know David's got the, the Holy Spirit in him. So he's like, I don't like you, buddy. So David drops off his food to his bros and goes, 
I'm going to take out that guy. His brothers are looking at this pipsqueak like, boy, what are you going to do? You ain't going to do nothing. In fact, oh God, his hating ass brothers. His brothers look at David like, little boy, if you don't shut up, what are you talking about? Shouldn't you be shepherding sheep? Stop it. Don't even... I cannot tell you how many times my family have done things like this because only family talk to you like that, like in such a disrespectful, disregarding kind of way, dismissive way, like doubting your dreams, doubting whatever you say. When I heard that, I got so mad. I was like, no, don't tell me what I will and will not do. You don't know me. That's a line from Titanic. If anyone caught that, I know I'm obsessive. Anyways, they were like, D David was like, you know what? No. So David probably amped up because his brothers pissed him off goes up to Saul and is like, I can take him out. Could you imagine Saul's face like, little boy, where's your harp? <laughs> <laughs> like, he's like, no, you can't. And David is like, I can and I will. And uh, uh, he goes, Saul goes, what do you know about battle? Let alone, what do you know about battling a nine foot giant? David goes, listen, I'm a shepherd and I've been a shepherd for years. I have killed animals that come to attack me and I kill them with my bare hands. He says, I've, I've attacked lions. I've attacked all these, all these different things. And you know what, when the Holy Spirit is in you, anything is possible. So he goes, Saul goes, you know what? You're probably gonna die anyways, whatever, just do it. He basically says, Saul basically says, suit yourself. So Saul takes off his armor and goes, okay, little boy, well, if you're going to die, at least like have the armor on. You know, here's take this, take this, here's a sword and whatever. And David looks at it like, I don't need that. I don't need any of that. I'm not even used to it. I'm not going to use that. I'm going to use what I know. This boy refuses to take the armor. He takes a stick, five clean stones, a little purse, in a sling. He looks like a brown Harry Styles. And that is what he brings to battle. Could you imagine Saul? Saul was like, oh Lord Jesus. Mazel <laughs> <laughs> tov, go, go out, go out little kid. <laughs> so now David approaches Goliath and Goliath sees him and scoffs. I mean, Goliath even references how handsome he is. It almost pisses him off. Have you ever seen someone so pretty you just want to slap? <laughs> That's probably what Goliath is doing. And Goliath, to his face, Goliath curses David. But as we know, anytime you go and curse something towards the Holy Spirit, bounces off like water off a duck's back. He goes, y'all are a bunch of birds. David goes, I'm going to show you birds. So Goliath, moves forward towards David. David pulls a rock out of his pouch, gets that sling ready, poof, launches that rock, and it hits Goliath right in the forehead. Goliath tumbles down clean. And the first thing David does is run towards the body, grab the sword of the Goliath, and cut his head off. David later takes that head to Jerusalem like a trophy, like a souvenir. And once that happens, the Philistines start scattering. You see some of the Israelites like kind of like come in and like, cause once that dude was down, they were like, oh snap. We can go to, we can, we can fight now. So they start fighting or whatever. Like, and they start seeing like, yo, who is this kid? That's where people like start like first hearing about David. Like who, what, what, who is this guy? Like, who is this kid? And Saul hears about this and Saul, we already know his scheming, his scheming behind. He was like, who is this little kid, David, who just became a hero? I think this is important to note that after David's win against the Goliath, Saul asks, whose son are you? And David goes, I am David, son of Jesse of Bethlehem. Oh, and when he said that, I could see it like a movie playing, you know, like, 
Ah, oh, what a great moment. What a great, what a, this is such a great tale, you know? Um, and I'll leave you guys with this because we're winding down. And the story continues next week. So I'll see you next week to finish off the book of 1 Samuel. But I'll leave y'all with this because I thought it was kind of funny. Mm -hmm. After this victory, the people treat David like royalty. Because I feel, and again, this is just a brilliant interpretation, but Saul keeps sending David out to, for battles. You know, so after this one, he sends it to the most difficult one. Like, why would you do that? Maybe because he doesn't mind if he dies or whatever. Who knows? But he wins every single one. He even, oh, we'll get to that next week, but he even sends him out to do the most outrageous things. That's how you know Saul is petty. Saul is fake. Saul's conniving. Saul is wicked. But what I thought was kind of funny is that all the women after the victory that David won, the women come out and they, you know, girls, they probably like have no bras on, like looking like little gypsies, gitanas, you know, but like sexy. And the girls start singing. They start dancing around Saul and David, but look at what they sing. Look at what they start singing, guys. Scripture chapter 18, verse seven. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Y'all, <laughs> Saul was fuming. Saul was livid. Even then, Saul was like, I, I know I'm going to end the episode, but like Saul at that, at that point was like, what, did, did you just say that he got tens of thousands and I only got thousands? Like even, even while David was still his harpist, David still plays a harp for King Saul. Saul is so mad and bitter and jealous that Saul literally throws a spear at David while he's playing. <gasps> David dodges it because he got cat-like re uh, reflexes. But yeah, guys. Okay, wait, but stay tuned for next week because the saga of Saul and David is just getting started. Now, it may appear to be a little bit of a low-hanging fruit of a moral of the story, but it happens to be this. We all have our own Goliath. Something that causes fear in us. Maybe that fear is leaving an abusive relationship. Maybe it's leaving a job you hate to pursue your passion. Maybe you're so afraid of failure you start to romanticize your own insecurities. All those Israelites, even King Saul, hid away scared of the Goliath and his strength. All except one guy, a poor young shepherd boy, David. David knew he would be able to defeat the Philistine giant because he had the full armor of God inside of him. That, a couple of stones and a sling, helps. <laughs> when you trust in God and trust that he will be there for you when you need, he will make the impossible possible. Now, now that that's out of the way, I have a bonus moral of the story. One that really jumped out at me this time around. And the moral of the story is this. Survival mode ain't fun. Anyone who's ever been in a desperate situation knows what I'm talking about. David was not a stranger to dangerous situations. He would kill animals that attacked him all the time as a shepherd. He was poor. He knew how to hustle. But more importantly, he practiced loving God on the daily. That's why Saul was so intimidated by him. And while David was dodging flying spears, escaping a crazed king trying to kill him, he is out in the wilderness hiding in survival mode for weeks, all alone, with nothing but faith and his own thoughts. The Goliath in that circumstance was himself. And David had to remind himself of God's faithfulness if he was gonna survive. Now we know where some of his Psalms and writings come from. David was preaching the gospel to himself. At one point, you know, like in Psalm 59, 
verses 16 through 17, David says, I will sing of your strength. In the morning, I will sing of your love. For you are my fortress, my refuge in times of trouble. You are my strength. I sing praise to you. You, God, are my fortress, my God on whom I can rely. Ooh! Hey, Father! We just ended on a song. Did you hear that? Oh, David was so great. So how'd I do? Yeah? Yeah. I mean, Father, you know I'm, I'm feeling a little fat this week. Father, it's just my jeans. I'll just... Okay. You guys, oh God, I've been wanting to do that all day. Catch you next week. Anyways, Father, listen, I think the Lexapro is making me gain some weight. <laughs>